I'm Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Capehart. Since this is still kind of the holiday weekend, I figured we'd rerun one of my favorite interviews from the first half of this year. Veteran music editor and writer Danielle Smith and I totally nerded out over her new book, Shine Bright, a very personal history of black women in pop. This was a very personal conversation where Smith and I reminisce about some of the great songs of our childhood, including Midnight Train to Georgia. The thing that was most important to me and has stayed with me my whole life is that I have never believed that Gladys Knight got on that train. In this conversation first recorded on May 4th for Washington Post Live, Danielle Smith details the stories of the black women in pop she highlights in Shine Bright and explains why she was determined to give them their due. Danielle Smith, welcome to Capehart on Washington Post Live. How are you? I am great. I am so excited about this conversation we're going to have and to talk about your book. And I want to start by um, quoting something that you told Jamel, um, Jamel Hill in The Atlantic, that to just shine bright on behalf of myself is new. Why is that? And answer that in talking about why you entitled your book Shine Bright. Wow, I really did say that, and it's absolutely true. Um, I titled Shine Bright, I titled the book Shine Bright for a number of reasons, and really two. One is the song that we kind of all know and love, which is This Little Light of Mine, I'm Going to Let It Shine. Uh, that song that's sung every, by everybody from Mahalia Jackson to Natalie Cole, everyone sings that song um, as a little girl. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. And then as you just quoted Rihanna, we talk about Rihanna's command to us that we all sort of shine bright like a diamond. And what I realize is how many black women, we need to be out in the front even more than we already are. There's so many times where we're doing amazing things, we're making amazing art, and still and yet we're not shining as bright as we could. And as you said, as I mentioned to Jamal, um, sometimes I think that's true even of myself. Right, well, so, so then, you know, to shine bright, and you know, I, I love that quote because I find myself in, in a lot of ways also, it's sort of new to actually sort of revel in, in, in the light and in your accomplishments and, and in your abilities. Why do, you think, why do you think we have that problem? Is that, a, is that a personal issue? Is that a cultural issue? Or is that a, is that a race issue, to be perfectly blunt? I think most times it's a combination of all three. I do. But I, and I think it also has something to do with the way people are raised. Some people are raised very much like, by all means, go to the front of the line. You belong at the front of the line. Some parents are like, there's no me firsting here. We like everyone to be the same or you hang to the back and let the other people go to the front. Um, so I think some of it can be that. But I do also think, particularly with Black women, that our accomplishments are often just blown off of us like we're dandelions. Like we do these amazing, you know, tennis championships and these um, these albums that change the course of music history have these voices that everyone responds to. And still and yet the respect isn't 100% there. The, what I like to think of what some people do in American culture is raise certain people to the levels of genius. The level, 
the levels of genius that Black women are elevated to are not as high as they ought to be. They just aren't. Even with people like a Beyonce, like a Whitney, like a Mariah, like a Mahalia Jackson, like Marian Anderson, like Gladys Knight, um, these people have done splendiferous things and still, to me, aren't lifted up as high as they could be. Mm -hmm. You know, you told The New Yorker, and I quote, people say, how can you say that Black women in pop don't get the credit they're due? Oh, they get credit. They don't get the credit that they're due. Yes, that's absolutely true. And I'm a person that used to be the editor of Billboard. I'm very into numbers. I'm very into stats. And uh, Shine Bright is a merge of memoir and biography, but I'm, but it's it's a very deeply reported book. And I go to the data. I look at like how many Grammys did Whitney have at the time of her death after an almost 30-year career compared to the amount of Grammys, say that, and Adele had after only two albums. Mm. When you start looking at things like that, when you start looking at the amount of number one hits that the Supremes had as compared to the number one hits that the Beatles had and how the Beatles have been raised over the last 50 years, to the level of genius in this country, the highest on high. And the Supremes always get mentioned as an afterthought to what the Beatles accomplished in the 1960s, uh, particularly. So when people say, well, Daniel, what specifically are you talking about? I have specifics for you all day, I do. You know, you talk about how you, this is part memoir, but it's also deeply reported. Let's talk about the, the, the memoir piece. Why, why did you go about the book this way, weaving your, your story, your personal story, with the stories of these women you, you highlight? Because I do believe it was time for me to claim my space as a Black woman in pop music. I've been covering pop music, hip-hop music, pop music, R&B music for almost 30 years now, starting out in the alternative news weeklies of the, the Bay Area, California's Bay Area, all the way up to the New York Times Magazine, to ESPN, to where you see me sitting right now. Uh, Editor-in-chief of Vibe twice in its most iconic era, edit, first Black editor of Billboard. And I began to say, am I really claiming that part of my story? And if I'm going to claim that part of my story, then I need to claim also the part of the the story that got me to those places, which was mm -hmm. my childhood growing up in Northern California and Southern California. It was a very tumultuous uh, childhood for me, and it was time to talk about that as well. And not to just draw too fine a point to it, but when I was doing all the research about all these different Black women in pop, our lives mirrored mm. this, this thing of ambition, this thing of not allowing one's light to shine as, as brightly as it could. This thing of just sort of struggling to remind oneself that we should stand in the front. Um, I saw a lot of mirror images in some of the most famous women in the world. Well, let's talk about, the, there's a lot, there's a mix of the tumultuous childhood, seeing a lot of your life in some of the most famous women yep. in the world. An example of this is um, your chapter on Gladys Knight. And the, and the physical abuse your family experienced at the hands of your mother's boyfriend. Explain your, your interpretation of Gladys Knight's song, Midnight Train to Georgia, and why it resonates so deeply with you. Because that's, that's an incredible song. And yes. you know, we've all heard it, we've all heard it. But yes. how did it resonate for you? 
Well, it resonates. It, the song came out when I was about eight years old. It was a number one pop hit in 1973. It was all over the radio. You could not move without hearing Midnight Train to Georgia. And even as a little girl of eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 years old, the thing that I knew in my heart about Gladys Knight and the Pips, Midnight Train to Georgia, is that one, it's not a song about Georgia. It's a song about California. And I am a California girl. So I re it resonated with me for that reason. The first line of the song is L.A., proved too much for the man. And I just loved that there was a song about where I was living at the time. But in addition to that, I loved the conversation between mm -hmm. Gladys Knight and her pips. I thought it was an amazing conversation, the likes of which I hadn't heard between a foreground and a, a foreground singer and a background singer. But the most, the thing that was most important to me and has stayed with me my whole life is that I have never believed that Gladys Knight got on that train. Not ever, mm -hmm. not once. I've never believed that. I believe that she got him to the station and she got him to the platform and she wished him very well. She wishes that she could go with him. But I always think to myself, he's the one that pawned all his hopes. He's the one that sold his old car. I do not believe that the Gladys Knight character in that song got on that train. And that was always very inspirational to me, that she was strong enough to stay there and become Gladys Knight. You, you know, this, interpret this interpretation is, in is incredible because you're adding a dimension to this song. Like I said, but look, if you're black and, and you were around when that song came out, you know these words, you know these words by heart, but to hear your interpretation and the storytelling that's behind it, I thought I knew the story, but the element you just put in there, not, not thinking that she got on that train made me think, you know, I don't think she got on that train either. And to me, it's also in the conversation between she and her pips when mm -hmm. she said, I'll be with him. And it's almost like she can't even get the words out of her mouth when the pips just step on her and say, I know you will. I know you will. And it's kind of like, well, let her finish her thought. <laughs> Do we know that she means, maybe she means she'll be with him in spirit. She'll be with him, you know, in his heart. But it doesn't necessarily mean that she got on the train with him. And look right. where and she you know is. Right. And you know what? Not to make this a whole conversation about Midnight Trade in Georgia, but in a lot of ways, that song to me is about a black woman's strength, where she's like, and so I agree with you. I don't think she got on that train. She's like, you know what? Go on. Do your thing. I'm going to stay right here. I have to, like, I have to stay here. Like, maybe we came out here together from Georgia. Um, maybe we tried to make it work as a duo. Maybe we tried to make it work as a boyfriend and girlfriend, husband and wife. But my dreams are here. And I don't think she wishes him any ill. I don't. Mm -hmm. I think that she just knows that she says, it's very clear, she says, LA proved too much for the man. The man. <laughs> right. It's not a too much for us does not say LA proved too much for we. It says for the man. And I feel for him. LA is a hard place. Trying to become a star <laughs> in Los Angeles, especially in the 1970s, very, very difficult. So I feel mm -hmm. for his character as well. But I, I stand behind the idea that Gladys Knight's character saw him to the platform and got back on her dreams. Mm -hmm. um, 
we are we are agreed on that point. This uh, I'm going to talk about something else you wrote. You wrote it's the fact that blackness has more value coming from white artists. And I'm picking up this quote uh, mid-sentence, but this is so normal that if you are a black artist and think of it too much, you go numb. And if you're a black woman artist, in addition to being robbed, you must appear strong. So how does that, d describe the plight of, of the black female pop star and how that, that uh, description I, of yours that I just read there is sort of emblematic of what she has to go through. I mean, it goes back as far as the dawn of, of the blues, of rock, of rhythm and blues. It goes back to Elvis Presley's version of Hound Dog being larger than the black woman's who, who sang it first. And people often try to act like that first uh, Rosetta's um, version wasn't a big hit. It was a big hit. It just wasn't as big as Elvis's. You think about what happened with Dusty Springfield and, Di and Dionne Warwick and how, you know, love and respect to, to Miss Springfield, but it wasn't just covering uh, Dionne's records. It was also covering them like in the moments when Dionne's records were still on the charts. Yeah. So it's, yeah. it's like a grab at, and also using very, very similar, if not exact vocal arrangements. And this was something that happened so many times. You could think of the case of um, Martha Wash, who was who was not credited with the number one hit, Everybody Dance Now. That literally is her singing the words, right. Everybody Dance Now. That's her. Mm -hmm. And her, those are just, those are just demo vocals that she just sent over, like a resume. And they just placed those vocals on on that record. And it happened I to Martha Wall a number of times. Yes. She sued and she won. And and the and the suit set precedent. When you think, I adore Adele. I think she's a beautiful voice. And her songwriting, ah, uh, it'll break your heart. But when I think of Beyonce at Grammys that night, front row. Even Adele said, this should be for you. Adele has talked a lot about her influences and who inspires her vocally. And they're all Black women. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it's constant. You know, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, countless uh, others are considered, quote unquote, crossover artists having mass appeal outside uh, of the black community or black genres. Mm -hmm. But why has that designation caused rifts between how black artists are embraced by black art, black communities and, and white communities? You know, it's a long story and we could stay doing this all afternoon because this is a topic that I love to try to talk about. I used to work at Billboard, there are charts there are the R&B charts and there are the pop charts. Essentially, the, that's shorthand for really the black charts and the white mainstream charts. Mm -hmm. So the idea of crossing over meant that you crossed over from what actually used to be called the race charts, the Negro charts, and in unkind circles, the N-word charts. Mm -hmm. 
So people would strive to cross over to the pop charts. That meant they were selling more records. That meant that they could um, play larger uh, and more beautiful venues and sell tickets for more. They could, um, their music could be played on radio stations that um, were marketed to white and mainstream audiences. Because the thing about the R&B charts, which is a lovely place to be, so many, so much amazing music on the R&B charts. But the thing is, it just doesn't give you the same reach. You're not getting the same reach. You're not able to be played on as many radio stations. Not enough people get to hear your music. And then there was this whole thing in the 80s, right when, let's say, Whitney Houston, Mariah Carey, uh, Lionel Richie, uh, Michael Jackson were all becoming the biggest selling artists in the world. All of a sudden, it became a very ugly thing to sort of go pop that it wasn't keeping it real to be on the pop charts. But prior mm-hmm. to that decade, um, it, it was totally fine to be a pop star. It was totally fine. But it was when black people began to take up space on the pop charts, it was a pushback from music critics, mostly white music critics and some black music critics that it wasn't a place for black artists. I've always been against that. And, and right now, you can see that a combination of hip-hop and R&B is dominant on the pop charts globally, even as we speak right now. So, yeah, it's, so I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. Finish your thought. No, no, no. I'm just saying it's like, there, it's this idea of crossing over. I'm always like, from what to what? Right, right, right. <laughs> what is, we're crossing over from a made-up thing. It's a made-up thing. It's an R&B chart and a, and, and a pop chart. That is, those are made-up things. This podcast is sponsored by Monarch Money. Are you saving to reach your financial goals? Reaching those goals isn't just about getting more money, but by managing what you have. And the best way to manage your money? Monarch Money. Monarch Money is a new kind of finance app that's intuitive, powerful, ad-free, and takes the headaches out of budgeting. Try it free when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. Monarch puts all your accounts, investments, transactions, and finances at your fingertips. With a complete view of your finances, you'll gain insights on your spending and find new ways to save. Plus, Monarch lets you customize your dashboard, collaborate with your partner, set custom budgets and goals, and track your progress toward them. See why Mint users are turning to Monarch Money and loving it, and why the Wall Street Journal named Monarch Money the best budgeting app overall. Get a 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H money.com podcast for your free trial monarchmoney.com slash podcast. If you, if you were back at, if you were um, running billboard again, um, would you just go in there and say, you know what, why do we have all, why do we have all these separate charts? Let's just have one big chart. And it's based on, it's based on sales or whatever metrics um, that you come up with. Oh, those conversations have been had many, many times over the years with me and without me being involved. There are great people at billboard who are always trying to, change things. But then that would mean, okay, so are we changing all the radio stations as well? Mm. Are we doing that? <laughs> because w- music, the, the history of music in the United States of America is, is, is the history of segregation in the United States of America. You have to think about the old pictures where you would see, say, Nat King Cole um, performing on stage and um, the black people would be up in the nosebleed seats and all the white people would be downstairs in the good seats. 
music has been living this segregated life from the very, very beginning. Sometime artists like Nat King Cole, even the Motown Review, that was what was so revolutionary about the Motown Review, is that the Motown Review was like, we're not going to play to segregated audiences. People say, oh, Motown was so great because Motown had all these pop hits. Yeah, sure, of course, without question. But also when it was the same with Dick Clark. Dick Clark would, and his review would not play to segregated audiences either. But those were the, that's the way things were at that time. Right. The, audience was the audiences were segregated. Those concerts ha halls were. That's why we have a Chitlin circuit and a regular circuit with regard to performance in the United States of America that still exists to this day. The radio stations, we know how it is. There's the black station, there's a white station, there's a Latin station. This is, these are all made up things. Mm -hmm. these, they're made, but when they're made up, I say they were intentionally made up. Right, right. To separate, yeah. to separate music fans from each other. Mm -hmm. I, I, I need to squeeze in two more things before we run out of okay. time. The first one is talk about nicknames and why nicknames for, for artists. Like I'm thinking of, of um, you know, Sister Rosetta Tharp was called the godmother, godmother of rock. Uh, Marilyn McCoo bristled at the five dimension being called Champagne Soul. Yes. Why were those nicknames so problematic? Well, if you're speaking of somebody like Marilyn McCoo of the, of the fifth dimension, of the multiple Grammy winning fifth dimension, yeah. and also she won Grammys also with her husband, Billy Davis Jr., for great songs like uh, you don't have to be a star, baby, to be in my show. Oh, I, I think, loved that song when I was a kid. It's not an amazing record. Number one pop hit also. Um, but to Marilyn's mind, she's like, why can't I just be singing music? Why can't I just, why must my music be classified? Why are you making up, um, I'm paraphrasing here, but why are you making up new classifications for something that is just, one, just music? Or if you want to call it something, let's just call it black music. Why are we giving all these names to it? We still have those kinds of, of names. When I was covering uh, R&B and hip hop closely in the 1990s and 2000s, um, it was called urban, urban music. There's all mm -hmm. these labels um, that just, let's just call it music or let's say what it is, it's black. And when you think about Rosetta Tharp being called the godmother of rock, I'm very specific about this because I'm like, a godmother is not usually even related to the person that she's the godmother of. Right. She is the person that is asked, you know, a very good friend of the parents who's asked to take care of the, the child of the parents should something go wrong, depending on what your religion is. So my thing is this, if she in fact did birth rock and roll, which she did, Chuck Berry gave that to her. Elvis Presley gave that to her. Why is she being noted as the godmother and not the mother of it? Mm -hmm. Why? And th these are intentional things that are written. We're both journalists. You know how these things go. You write things and your editor says, oh, actually it's this. Will you just go check that for me? And then let's just change it and make sure that we're correct here. But if that's not, that, those are intentional moments that have been allowed to stay in uh, music criticism and rock criticism for the past going on now 100 years. Mm -hmm. And I, for myself, it's one of the reasons why I wanted to write Shine Bright, because my career has been very jam-packed with trying to talk about music differently, talk about hip-hop mm -hmm. differently. These musics are not perfect, but in so many cases, number one, they were first. They are the inspiration for so much of 
the music that has everything, country, uh, just everything. So much of it starts in the blues tradition, which is a black tradition, which is a post-slavery mm-hmm. tradition. And I'm like, mm-hmm. can we talk about it? Let's talk about it with with emotion and passion, but let's talk about it with rigor and reporting. And that's really what Shine Bright is about. And, you know, there's a re- review of your book in NPR, and there's this great, um, a, a great line that the writer put, it's a, you're not, try, uh, not trying to rewrite history, but refocus it when it comes to ex- exactly what you were saying. Let me get you on one more, on one more thing. Um, you noted that Stephanie Mills, the great Stephanie Mills, passed, um, passed on appearing on the TV One show Unsung because yes. she didn't consider herself to be unsung, which That's I think was all kinds of, of correct, because I'm like, unsung, unsung to who? <laughs> to who, exactly. <laughs> Stephanie Mills, who brought us The Wiz originally in the 1970s, are you kidding yes. me? Stephanie Mills, whose version of the record Home has inspired vocalists for 30, 40 years now. Stephanie Mills, who tours relentlessly to her fans, they call them stands. They stand for her forever after on social media, whenever she performs everything. And the thing is, Stephanie Mills is fine. She is healed. Could there have been more for Stephanie Mills in her life as a pop artist, as someone who crossed over? Sure. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And if Stephanie Mills, something I often say about Shine Bright, and Stephanie Mills is fine with that, though, like I say, she's healed. She talks about that. She's not unsung. But in some ways, I think she is. I think more people should know who Stephanie Mills is and what she's contributed. And if Stephanie Mills is not mad, then I'm her sister and I'm mad for her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's not mad, but she hasn't forgotten. Um, no, like she, no. She, she, and I went to see, my mom took me to see The Wiz. So I saw The Wiz with Stephanie Mills up in the newsfeed seats <laughs> in New York. But I never forgot it. You, you know how kids used to sing the Whitney Houston song? Everyone, um, um, the line, teach them well and help them. What's that song? Let them lead the, yes, teach them let well them and let them lead the way. way. Yes. Yeah. Well, before that song, it was home. Stephanie Mills. Remember, folks, everybody performed that song. Um, Everyone another, did. But, but, you know, you all, but Minnie Ripperton and Phyllis Hyman had unsung episodes. And I'm also thinking, what, Phyllis Hyman, Minnie Ripperton? Come on. But the thing is, I think when people think of unsung so oftentimes, it's because, again, to refocus history, that is a situation where it's only the broader population the white fans are being valued. Mm-hmm. Those people are not unsung to us. Right. Phyllis Hyman is not unsung to us. Stephanie Mills is not unsung to us. Minnie Ripperton is not unsung to us. But maybe because they only had one top 20 um, mainstream hit. Or maybe because, I don't know, maybe because they were not as traditionally beautiful as, as America likes its uh, pop stars to be. Uh, maybe it's because they had a lot of things to say politically, as Billie Holiday did when she was alive. Yep. And singing yep. Strange Fruit was very difficult for Billie Holiday in those days to get off of the race charts. Um, but the Black fan, man, listen, we are valuable. We are as valuable as the artists themselves. Because truly, we set the trends. 
what we buy, what we listen to, what we play on, um, stations that are marketed to black people, the t-shirts with the, with the rappers names on the front, the clothes, the everything. It's the black fan that moves culture, um, in the United States of America. And we all know that U S culture has historically moved the culture of the globe. And so I can see why, um, people would want to say Stephanie Mills is unsung, but she is not, she is not. Mm -hmm. She has a yeah, she has she has us. You know, I remember when I was in college in the eighties. Remember when the movie The Big Chill came out? Oh my God, I know what you're going to say. And and everybody, I went to Carlton in Minnesota. Folks were playing like, oh, I love the Big Chill soundtrack. And I just happened to have, I was just playing an album that had one of the songs on it. And the, one of my friends came in and said, oh, are you listening to the Big Chill soundtrack? I looked and like, no. <laughs> I, I grew up with this music. Oh, I've never heard it before. And to me, that blew my mind. Like, what do you mean you've never heard this music before? Some people, I mean, you would think that everyone has heard, you know, all of Motown, but it's just not facts. You know, mm -hmm. music has been so segregated. I mean, it used to be that radio was the place, right? Where we all heard music and heard new songs and these things. But music has always been that segregated. There are so mm -hmm. many places in the United States historically where Black people could not even come play in the town. So how could that person have heard that song, maybe? Unless they went to visit their cousin in New York or, or their, you know, they had a friend who's, whose dad collected Black records, records created by Black people. Mm -hmm. They could grow up their entire lives and not hear it at all. Sometimes even when I go back and look at the pop charts of the 1950s and 60s, and I'm like, so Doris Day really was this big? Dinah Shore really was this big? <laughs> Not where <laughs> we would hear it, but that is actual right. musical segregation. It's so terrible, especially mm -hmm. when you remember how it was during the disco era. And the whole fear, I think, for mainstream culture, conservative mainstream culture about disco was whenever you saw the pictures of the discotheque, oh my God, it was like, oh my God, there's Cary Grant and there's Grace Jones right next to him. Oh my God. Oh my God, look, there's there's gay people at the club next to the straight people. Oh my God, are those the Latin people in the club with the white people? And oh my God, panic, panic, panic at the disco. Okay. It's because you could see that integration happening. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's why there was that whole thing of like disco sucks, disco sucks, which was a whole moment mm -hmm. where people tried to act like disco was not a real music and, and disco texts weren't amazing spaces to, to, to celebrate life on a Friday night which is precisely what they were. I wish I was old enough to have really been partying at the disco. <laughs> you know what? If we were old enough to party at the disco, we might not be here talking to each other <laughs> right now, <laughs> considering how fun, how fun those discos were, allegedly, right? as I see. But I just want to read one. We have Danielle, Danielle we, <laughs> we have to go. But I want to read um, uh, uh, something you said also in that NPR interview and talking about your book and, the, and other books um, doing the same thing you're doing, talking about black music and black artists. Uh, is it a reclamation? I don't know. I just want the story to be on the record. 
And I think that this is what you have done um, with your book, Shine Bright, A Very Personal History of Black Women in Pop. Its author is here, Danielle Smith. I cannot thank you enough for coming to Cape Art and Washington Post Live. You know, we could sit here and talk for another two hours, uh, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna come find you wherever you are in the country so we can actually have a meal together in person and shut the place down. <laughs> yes, it's a pleasure talking to you. And I, I feel that, that love that you have for music coming out of you. It's amazing to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to Capehart. It's produced by Nick Roberts. We'll have new episodes for you every Tuesday. I'm Jonathan Capehart. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ.